when all around is sinking sand. God, may we, may we live that truth out in the way that we trust you, in the way that we talk to our neighbor, the, the way that we raise our kids, the way we do everything, God. May it all be reflected in the fact that we trust you. And that we know that you will not let us down, that your promises are sure. We pray all these things. We pray that you would be with Mike as he brings your word this morning. Open our hearts, open our ears to hear, not just to hear the words, but to listen to them. God, we love you and pray that we love you more. Today's passage is out of Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 39. Let me read it for us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us real fast. Lord, uh, we ask that as we uh, step into this passage that instructs us in, um, in the way of Christian perseverance, that you would um, fortify us for your kingdom, that you would give us the, uh, the staying power that we need um, to, to remain faithful to the end of our lives as a response to your grace um, and in the meantime as a response to pressure. Lord, we love you and we trust you for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in case I didn't mention earlier, my name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. Uh, today we're continuing in our series on Hebrews. The, this is a letter written by a, a preacher in the first century. It's possibly the notes to a sermon. Um, and this has probably been a little bit more of a, a theologically rigorous stretch that we've been in. The, the passages have been very dense. Um, now the author is going to make a little bit of a transition. He's going to switch from speaking mainly as a theologian to speaking mainly as a pastor. And so he's going to start to, to, to get more practical here, um, inspirational at times. It's less head-oriented. It's more oriented to the heart and the hands. But both the theology and the the practice are for the same purpose. Uh, the, the, the letter to the Hebrews was, was written to uh, create Christian perseverance. It was written so that this group of people would be able to persevere. Uh, I want to point out two things about the, the passage before I jump in. 
What we're going to see is, is five commands for Christian perseverance, but these commands are really responses. They're responses to two things. So right up front, what we see in the passage is this opening where he sort of recaps everything that's come before in the past five chapters, where he's been unpacking uh, what he's been calling the priesthood of Christ, the way that Christ is bringing us home to God. So he, he sort of uh, recaps a little bit of that. He says, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us... dot dot dot. So what I'm pointing out here is that everything that we're about to talk about today is a response to the Christian gospel. It is a response to the announcement that Jesus has succeeded in his task. He has extended to us the forgiveness of sins on the cross and taken his throne. So now what are we going to do about it? (laughs) So on one level, it's a response to the gospel. But then I also want to point out another thing. This passage, uh, these five responses that we're going to talk about today... They're not only responses to the gospel, they're also responses from, uh, to, to pressure. The, the letter written to, the, the letter of the Hebrews written to these Christians, these Christians were facing marginalization, they were facing pressure both from the, from the culture at large as well as the state. We're going to talk about that, but the, the passage keeps on coming back to this, this need to, to hold fast, the need to, um, to persevere in the face of these challenges that they're up against. And so these, these are five responses both to the gospel, but then also five responses to pressure from outside. Pressure to, to deconvert, pressure to compromise, uh, pressure to let go of those things that make us uh, distinctly Christian people. So let's begin with, uh, with the first of the five responses. It's draw near. So he says in in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart, in other words, a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So he invites us to draw near to God. So what does it mean to draw near to God? So ultimately, you know, what what he's talking about is not that there's a, a particular place in the world that we need to take a walk to, and God's located in that place. And we go there, and that, that's how we draw near to God. In fact, because of what Jesus has done, we have access to God in, in, uh, in the way that a child has access to their parent when they're thirsty in the middle of the night. Um, and so when he talks about drawing near to God, he's, he's really just, I think, talking about these basic spiritual disciplines that God has given us to approach him. Uh, we've talked about scripture a little bit in the series. I'm going to talk about the, the church later on. I think those are two of the, the biggest spiritual disciplines, but I want to say a brief word about prayer, um, drawing near to God through prayer. So many of us uh, might not have a disciplined time set aside for prayer. Uh, prayer is sort of something that we toss over our shoulder as we go to, from task to task, and that's actually a really valuable thing, just sort of spontaneous, you know, off-the-cuff off, off the cuff sort of prayers to God. He hears those, and those are, are important. They don't have to be long. They don't have to be eloquent. He hears them. But I do want to say that if that's all that our prayer life consists in, then we are probably malnourished. If, if our whole prayer life is sort of these, these prayers that we're tossing over our shoulder, we're probably malnourished in terms of, uh, of, of our relationship to God. The author here says that when we pray, we're drawing near to God. That doesn't mean he becomes closer to us than he already was. It means that we are taking advantage of his presence. So that's why it's important to have, I think, a time set aside where we pray for an extended period of time. This is just a really practical thing, and I feel the, the need for more of this myself. But I think that we need, it doesn't have to be like an hour, uh, but even just 10 to 15 minutes where we set aside time each day to approach God and to become aware of his availability to us. So here's why I think that's really important. So when you sustain an injury and you have to go into physical therapy— what are you doing when you go to physical therapy? So you're going there to, to have an instructor or a, or a therapist um, make you aware of your body in painful ways, 
Um, and and to, to make you aware of your body in a, so that you can relearn how to use it, basically, in physical therapy. Now, the point of you going there is not so that you can use your body the proper way there and then go back home and, and not use your body the proper way. You're, you're, you're going to physical therapy to have this intense, focused time where you're aware of your body and you're using it properly so that you can bring that awareness into the rest of the day, into the rest of the week, until finally it becomes habitual. I think something like that takes place when we spend time drawing near to God. Like We're becoming aware of his presence in a way that, that we usually aren't aware of it if, if we're just sort of moving from task to task and, and tossing prayers over our shoulder. When we draw near to God for an extended amount of time, we, we become aware of his presence. And it's not just so that we can leave that behind. It's so that we can go about the rest of our day, about our work, about our, our duties, um, with that awareness of the presence of God. Uh, so uh, one, one man, Brother Lawrence, calls this practicing the presence of God. Uh, which, is, which I think is, is pretty good. So Hebrews tells us that, that this drawing near to God, this is a natural response to what Christ has accomplished. Uh, draw near is, is sort of the obvious thing to do when the whole message of the past five chapters has been Christ has made it able for you to draw near. So what should you do? You should draw near. Uh, but, but somehow it still needs to be said. So when a parent is loving and welcoming toward a very young child, um, generally, they don't need to tell that child to draw near, right? So I have a very loving and welcoming wife. She is loving and welcoming toward our children. She does not need to tell them to draw near. They will just do it on their own in often intrusive and overwhelming ways. Um, so they just do it. They just know to do it. The, the path to mommy is open. I'm going to sit on her while she's nursing Theo. You know, it, it just, it, they don't need to be told, but somehow we need to be told. God has extended to us the love of a good father. Because of what Christ has done, we have the, the, the uninhibited love of God and an unqualified welcome into his presence, and yet somehow we also need to be told by this author, you ought to draw near. Because we don't share what my kids share toward my wife and I. Somehow we, we, we don't realize that this welcome is something that we ought to take advantage of, that it's that it's one of the most important things we could possibly do to draw near to God. And so this morning, what I want to encourage us to do is to, to see that we have been made as entitled to God's presence as Christ is. Not because we are naturally sons and daughters of God, but because he is the Son of God and has gifted to us his identity so that we can approach God with as much assurance as he does. And so I encourage us to, to spend the time, to budget the time to draw near to God. And I, I also want to add this. I think that we can only give what we have. So when we talk about our responsibilities to each other as, as Christians and as members of this local body, when we talk about our responsibility to our families and our friends and our neighbors, you can only give what you have. So if you are not abiding in Christ, if you are not uh, practicing the presence of God, then you have less of that to give naturally. But if you are the kind of person who is rooted in the presence of God, then you will bring that with you, oftentimes unconsciously, just as you seek to obey God and respond to his scriptures. And I want to say... Specifically, uh, I encourage the husbands and fathers in this congregation to do that. And not, not that I'm suggesting that, that you aren't. Uh, you might not be, in, in which case you need to listen right now. Um, but for the husbands and fathers in our congregation, I, I especially encourage you to be pious men. Be pious men. The truth is that you are a big deal. You're a big deal just by the fact of being a husband or a father. And so be pious. There, there's, one, uh, there's one thinker that I really appreciate who, who uh, he, he sort of reflects on the classics often. So he was talking about Virgil's Aeneid, um, if, if you guys have read that. So it follows this, 
um, Trojan warrior Aeneas. He's, he's escaping the burning city of Troy, and he's going to go and, uh, you know, found Italy and, and essentially birth the, the civilization that will eventually become Rome. There's just very few books more manful than the Aeneid. But at one point, one of the gods, who's a blacksmith, Mephestus, he, uh, he smiths a shield for this warrior, Aeneas. And on the shield, he puts images from the entire history of, of Rome, his whole legacy that's ahead of him. Aeneas has no idea what those images are. But there's this moment where he's handed the shield that Mephestus has made him, and he looks at all these images. He's told, this is your legacy. So he looks at it, and he puts it on his shoulder, and he goes off to, to found Rome. And uh, th- this, this one pastor that I appreciate, he just says, that's how men ought to think about their piety. When you approach God, when you draw near to God, you are shouldering your legacy. When you're drawing near to God, you are, you're, you're, you're not just standing there as yourself, you're standing there as the representative of your household and the representative of the generations that are going to follow you if you, if you are, um, not, not only if you're a, a family man, but also if you're just a discipler. And so when you approach God, I encourage you to, to think of yourself as shouldering a shield, bearing the images of your legacy. You might not know what they all mean. You might not know what all of them are, what, what will actually come of your legacy, but you know that if you are faithful to shoulder your shield and draw near to God, it will be a legacy of faith that follows. So that's the first response, draw near. Secondly, hold fast. I'm reading out verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The, the point here is pretty plain. Hold on to the confession, which means hold on to the faith. So hold fast means hold on tight. That's basically what it means, hold on tight. Now, you do not tell somebody to hold on tight when they're in an easy chair, right? Like, brace for impact, he's dozing. You know, when someone's just lounging in an easy chair, no one's going to tell them to hold on tight because just the stakes are not very high. You tell someone to hold on tight when they're riding a mechanical bull, you know? So if, if the author feels the need to tell these Christians to hold fast, it's because they are in danger of losing their grip. It's because there's something happening right now that could actually get them to lose their grip, to recant the faith, to compromise. We're going to learn later on that this pressure was coming mainly in the form of, of social pressure, sort of a, a cultural pressure, and eventually it actually ended with, uh, with state intervention, with confiscation of property and imprisonment. But at this point, the, the persecution was not bloody, right? So this is not a bloody persecution, but it is a cultural and, and a state persecution. So some Christians would probably argue that, that passages like this aren't especially relevant to American Christians. So you'll, you'll hear some talk about the evangelical persecution complex, where evangelicals seem to see persecution under every rock. Um, there's probably something to that. There's probably some truth to that, honestly. Um, but at the same time, uh, uh, there are times in our history where, where even though that's been true, that there's still active pressures that are working against our faith. And I tend to think that those pressures are mounting in a way that is pretty unprecedented, at least for many, many years. And so while I don't support sort of the boy who cried wolf evangelical persecution complex, I think persecution is part of the Christian life. I think that there is a mounting cultural pressure that's, that's already rising. And, um, you know, I can't tell the future, but... Uh, reading the bones a little bit, it seems as though I think there's a state pressure coming as well. Um, and I could be wrong about that, and I hope I am. Um, Aaron Wren is a thinker that, that I've found really balanced on this issue. Um, he's a former city planner who's sort of become like this reformed public intellectual. He's really interesting. So he wrote in his newsletter about what he calls positive, neutral, and negative worlds. So he, he, he says that at one point in American history, uh, Christianity occupied a positive world. And what he, what, he's, what he means by that is that being a Christian was sort of a, a, a net gain. It gave you a, a little bit of a social credit. So if you were a, a Christian, you, you gained by, by being so. If you weren't a Christian and you were vocally not a Christian, you, you lost socially. Um, so he's, he thinks that that has come to an end pretty thoroughly, and that came to an end just 
somewhere in, in the 90s, maybe. He's, you know, he doesn't really name a date. But uh, at that point, Christianity entered what he calls a neutral world, meaning that it didn't add anything to your social credit to be Christian, um, but it also didn't gain you anything either. So that's neutral world. But now what Aaron Wren wants to say is that Christianity in the United States occupies a negative world. So announcing yourself as a Christian in most corporate America settings is not going to gain you social favor. And in fact, uh, and you guys can follow up with some of our congregants who work in corporate America, um, you can ask them, what would it be like for you to announce yourself as a small-o orthodox conservative Christian at your place of work? My guess is that they're, they're going to say it would be pretty uncomfortable. To announce yourself as a Christian who holds to the historic ethic of Christianity, I think it would be pretty uncomfortable. That's what Aaron Wren is talking about, that Christianity is occupying a negative world at the moment in our country. And I think that that's going to probably increase, especially for our children. And so it becomes easy uh, to, to, to think as the social pressure sort of mounts, you start to consider uh, some of the options that John Stevenson spoke about weeks ago, just different ways that we might compromise, different ways that we might give up orthodoxy. And when you undergo pressure, you have two choices. You can either cave and therefore be comfortable, or you can accept the discomfort and hold your ground. Um, if you're going to accept the discomfort, you need a reason to do so. You need a reason to say, all right, I'm going to hold my ground. It's going to be pretty uncomfortable. Why should I do that? Uh, here in this passage, we're told that the reason why we should still choose discomfort over comfort, the reason why we should hold fast, is because God is faithful. We can trust that, that the, the prize promised to us will be given to us because God is faithful. So when someone makes a promise to you, you, you generally judge the worth of their promise on their trustworthiness. So I feel like the bread and butter of 90s films for a while was like the, uh, the kid that had the dad who never showed up to the games. You know, it's like, buddy, I promise I'm going to be there this time. And the kid's like, no, you're not dad. Well, why does the kid not trust the dad? Because he's not trustworthy. So his promise means nothing. You judge the worth of a promise by, by how trustworthy that person is. So, uh, but it's totally different when somebody with like a ton of gravitas and a ton of resources, someone who like reserves promises until they're sure they're going to follow through, it's, it's a way different thing when that kind of a person says, I promise you I'm going to do this. You know they're going to do it. So with, with this whole series, what we have seen is that God made promises and that he kept them. That God was faithful to literally corral Israel's history to prepare for the coming of Christ. If he has been faithful enough to bring us Jesus, he's going to be faithful enough to bring us home. And so that's why we can hold fast under pressure, however it, however it turns out to be in our country. And this is what we should be praying for those who are, who are facing really hot persecution too, that they would hold fast knowing that God really is faithful to bring them home. And so draw near, hold fast, next, stir up. So this, this next, uh, I'm going to read one passage, and it's actually going to, uh, one section, it's going to cover the next two commands. So let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, there's, there's no other, uh, if, if, we, if we leave the faith, if we, if we choose again the, the life of um, so, you know, habitual, unashamed sin, if we choose that life over Christ and the forgiveness of sins in him, we're not going to find any other sacrifice for sins elsewhere. There's no other way to God. We're not going to find something else out there that's going to do what Christ can do. Only he's going to be able to do it. So he says, instead, what we should expect is judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, because now we're pitting ourselves against the Lord. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's a reference to the Mosaic law. How much worse punishment, do you think, is going to be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God 
and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So both this command and the next one, they're they're both coming out of the same section, and both are motivated by a fear of judgment. That's what the author is, is using to motivate us to listen to these next two commands, is the fear of judgment. The reason why I'm saying that he's using this as a motivation is just that little word at the beginning of verse 26 where he, he says, hey, do these things for, so in other words, do these things because uh, if you don't, you're in danger of, of returning to the old life and there's no hope in the old life, right? So that's, that's how I know that he's using this as a motivation so the Christian idea of judgment uh, is going to be unattractive, um, incomprehensible to anybody who does not accept the authority of God. So if you do not accept the premise that God, by being creator, has all the authority, then you're not going to accept the premise that he can judge justly. So some believe in, in God, but not in his authority. So I think for, for many folks, God is sort of the cosmic therapist. Uh, he sits in his armchair and takes notes, and we pray to him on the chaise lounge. Uh, he gives us the scriptures, by which I mean he gives us some of the scriptures that sound like daily affirmations if taken out of their context, and they inspire us to be our best self. This is a God whose purpose terminates on us. And a, a, an interesting litmus test to, to, to think about, um, when we talk about what spiritual health is, What's the difference between how we talk about spiritual health and how we talk about mental health? How often do we talk about drawing near to God as a kind of self-care? Now, there are therapeutic benefits to prayer because God is faithful and Christ has saved you. Right? So that's going to have benefits to your mental health. And yet, if, the, if you see that as the purpose of God, then you've put the cart before the horse in a big way. And, and I'm afraid that many of, of, of our modern American churches have exchanged the therapeutic God for the transcendent one. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. In our current state of evangelicalism, we have no category for the experience of Martin Luther before the Diet of Worms. He was going to, Martin Luther was going to give testimony before the Diet um, standing on his conviction that justification was by faith alone, so essentially that, that God's grace is, is free and it isn't something that we kind of help along with our effort. Um, he stood before the diet the day before, uh, and, and they had told him, are you going to recant? And he asked for a night to think about it. <laughs> and he spent the whole night in, in, you know, in, uh, in sweat, in anxiety, wanting to make sure that he was going to be faithful to the scriptures if he stood his ground, thought that he, he, that, that he had it right, and then he returns to the diet the next day, and that's when you, you get the famous here I stand speech, where he, he stood on his conviction. That's spiritual health. And yet nobody would look at the night that he spent in his cell before that famous speech and say, he looks mentally healthy. I think the guy probably looked like he was about to poop his pants. And yet that was spiritual health because it was, it was a life lived not for his own sake but for the sake of the Lord. That is spiritual health. We have no category for Franz Jagerstadter who dissented from Hitler's Nazism and was beheaded for it. We have no category for that kind of persevering spiritual health. That kind of thing doesn't come from the therapeutic God. It comes from the transcendent one who has reached out to us in Christ. Standing opposed to the therapeutic God are basically all the martyrs throughout history and all the writers of the Bible. He's not in good company. We must stand with the transcendent God. God's purpose isn't about us. Our purpose is about him. All things exist for God, and he has authority over our world just because it all emerges from his will. That if he is the ground for all being, 
then he gets to decide what to do with being itself. He has the authority inevitably, and he has promised to exercise that authority to establish good over evil. And that's ultimately what the judgment of God is, is the moment where God uh, chooses good over evil and establishes good, eliminating evil. That is what the judgment of God is. And so the only way that we are going to, to stand on the side of good that day is if, is if it's on the basis of Christ's sacrifice and not on our own works. And so that's why we must persevere in Christ. So throughout this letter, the author of Hebrews has warned against drifting. And here he brings a different spin to it. So previously he told us to watch out for ourselves, but here he's telling us to watch out for each other. See, that stir one another up to love and good works. So he tells us to, to essentially be the ideal foxhole Christian. So who do you want next to you in a foxhole? You want someone who, can, you, who you can trust. You want someone who is going to push you to fight. You want someone who's going to put courage into you. You want someone who's going to remind you why it is that you're staying in the foxhole, despite the fact that it's incredibly uncomfortable in a foxhole. You're taking fire, the mustard gas is heavy, things look really bad. You want someone next to you who's going to keep you in the foxhole. Now here's the thing about a foxhole Christian. They're not generally the kind of person who tells you everything you want to hear. The ideal foxhole friend is going to be someone who often is, is telling you to, to think and do uncomfortable things. They're keeping you in the foxhole. Right? And yet that's exactly the person that you can trust. You can't trust the person who's telling you to get out of the, out of the foxhole. We only win the war if we stay in the foxhole. What I mean by that is you, you only get Christ if you persevere. So I guess to make the analogy work, you know, no man's land, you're in the foxhole. If you get out of the foxhole, you'll get shot. All right? There, that works better. Okay, that, that was good. All right. So we're back. The person that you can trust is the person who tells you what you don't want to hear and commits to walking with you as you work on the problem. That's the ideal foxhole Christian. That person makes themselves vital to your discipleship. If you have that kind of a person in your life, don't push them away. Spend disciplined time with them. Make them vital to your faith. So if that's the kind of person that you want next to you in the foxhole... That's the kind of person that you ought to be in the foxhole. We ought to be that for each other. We we, we want to seek to make ourselves vital to the faith of our brothers and sisters. So here's a really small thing that that we can do to to do that. If you're you're not already doing that, here's here's a good way to start. So um, we're a, a sociable church. We tend to talk after the service. Um, sometimes that's small talk, sometimes it's not. Um, when you get into a situation where you're talking about the weather, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's very unpredictable in these parts. Um, but you get into, you know, after church, you're talking about the weather. Um, instead of talking about the weather, consider just asking your brother or sister, how, how do you feel like you're going to respond to the passage that was preached today? And if they have something that, that occurs to them, then ask them if there's a way that you can help them do that. And you can start. You've now become uh, a foxhole Christian. And then you do that week after week, and that becomes habitual. Uh, Stir one another up. So the next thing, meet together. So what Hebrews is calling us to with these two commands is, is, uh, is what one author calls thick fellowship. So when you look at the stories of Eastern European Christians who lived under Soviet communism in, in, the, in, in Eastern Europe, um, what's common among all their stories is they had thick fellowship. They had a group of believers that they met with frequently in a disciplined way, and those people were the backbone of their faith. They couldn't have done it without that group. It was, the, it was thick fellowship, a group of people that, that studied the scriptures together, that prayed for each other, that reinforced each other's faith. One of the things that I'm concerned by in our cultural moment is that we have become an atomized people. We are very uh, 
individualistic and very atomized. What I mean by that is, is that we're not functioning as groups. Um, look at the modern American household. You know, uh, there might be many rooms, but there's few people to fill them. And they don't tend to stay all in one room together. They tend to spread out. We're more disconnected than any other generation before us. But in the past, being disconnected often meant that you were cut off from information, right? Like if you're a hermit out in the, mo- out in the mo- mountains, you know, you're not going to get a ton of information. And, you know, what is there to form you? Nowadays, we're in this really unique position where we go off into a room by ourselves and we flip on a screen and we are spiritually formed by who knows what. We become spiritually formed by algorithms uh, crafted by people who do not love you and they only want your money and they guide you from thing to thing and that information shapes your view of the world. So we're not only disconnected, but we're manipulated. We need to recover thick fellowship so that we can, we can stop this spiritual malnourishment. So if we're going to get back to something healthy, we will have to make a discipline out of fellowship, and it will feel like a discipline. We'll have to make a discipline out of hospitality. We will have to make a discipline out of meeting together. All right, so here's the thing about preaching through books of the Bible. The, the book that you've chosen to preach, it does not consult with you before it gives you the next verse. <laughs> um, it's just there, and you have to preach it. And if you refuse, then you should be fired as a pastor. Um, so I am going to preach this command to meet together. Uh, what I'm not doing right now is condemning any of you who have valid health reasons to be at home. There's many in our congregation who are staying home and, and joining us virtually and the reason why is because either they are immunocompromised, um, vulnerable in, in a significant way, or they're, they're connected to somebody who is, and, and that's a non-negotiable connection, right? So that's, there's some, some mutual dependence there, so they need to continue meeting. There are those situations. So if you're in that situation, you know, uh, all I can say is that I'm grateful to God for the technology that, that softens some of the sting of us being apart. I'm grateful for that technology. But I also want to, to say something that may come across a little bit provocative, but know that I'm saying it as your pastor and, and not uh, in order for it to be insulting. I have a word of caution for us. I do not want us to think that this is normal. This is not normal. And it is not healthy. We, we, we sometimes hear people say, I go to church online. No, you don't. Online, you you get to see the service elements. And that softens the sting in a way that is awesome. We did not have that before. If we were in a pandemic in the past, it would be total isolation from those brothers and sisters that were meeting together. So we're grateful for this technology. But church is not a service. Church is not an event. It is a people. And so to be with the church is to be with the people of the church. This is not something that we should get comfortable with. A Christian cut off from the congregation is a vulnerable Christian which is why it is so important for us to reach out to each other when we have to be apart. And it's also why it's important for, for those at home to constantly be asking, is now the time when I can return? We need to meet together. Because the church is the people, not the event. And it is way, way too easy for us to get used to the convenience, used to the comfort, and to say, I'll go to church online today. But that kind of a gathering is, is an illusion. So if we are watching remotely, I, I just urge us to not embrace it as normal. Feel the weirdness of it every time you sit down in your living room to join the church. 
And again, for, for many in our congregation, the best choice right now is to remain apart. I, I hope that, it's, that I'm being clear that I'm not condemning anybody who, who's doing that, who has a valid health reason or who's connected to somebody who's vulnerable. Again, my intention here is not to condemn at all. But it is to urge us to consider what, what we really need. In the long term, we need each other. And there has to come a moment where we return. So I guess all I'm really saying is to exercise discernment. Don't get comfortable. And for those of us who, who, are, who are meeting um, and are aware of folks who, are, who need to stay remote, I just think that it's our responsibility to keep on reaching out. Because it's way too easy for, for us to get, uh, to, to, you know, we, we have our conversations after church here and, and it feels like we're connected, but there are members of our body who aren't. And so I, I just, I, I urge those who are, who are part to reach out um, to co- congregants, make sure that you're connected through technology. Again, praise God for it. And for those of us here to, to reach out to those who aren't here um, through whatever means. So draw near, hold fast, stir up, meet together, and then the last thing is keep the faith. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So this passage sort of uh, makes... Things a little bit clearer for us in terms of what kind of persecution the listeners were facing. So they faced cultural pressure and state pressure. So I kind of want to walk through what this might have been like for them to experience. So clearly in their time, Christianity occupied a negative world, to go back to what Aaron Wren was talking about. Christianity was not a net gain for you socially. It was a net loss. So the way that this showed up, at least on a cultural level, was that Christianity became a subject of mockery. It became a subject of reproach. So Christians became sort of a laughing stock, the, the, the easy joke. They were held up as something to scorn, that the Christians were held up as something worthy of discrimination. You know, like, maybe I wouldn't do that for myse- you know, myself, but they definitely deserve it. That, that sort of was the cultural uh, disposition toward Christians. Now, there, there's something that happens when a group of people start to face cultural pressure. So a public, a a city, a a, a people, they don't shame something unless they see it as a threat. So nobody was was persecuting the Artemis cult. In fact, in some ways, until AD 70, not many people were persecuting the Jews. They had a lot of freedoms that other, other people groups did not have in Rome. And yet people started persecuting the Christians. Why was that? Well, because the values of the Christians seemed like a threat to the values of the broader culture. And so the way that the broader culture responded to those Christian values was to make them the subject of mockery. Now, what happens when, when, they, when they do that? Well, what ends up happening is it becomes a disincentivizer for anybody to join the Christians. Because they've just been joking with their friends, joking with their friends you know, about this group, and then suddenly... Uh, they might feel themselves attracted by the claims of this group, but they're not going to join because then they will be mocked with them. So it disincentivizes people to join the group, but then something else starts to happen. It splinters the group. So inevitably, in, 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 a, in a group that's facing public shame, you're going to have some pioneer sorts <laughs> that are just going to be out front and bold about their proclamation, and they're going to be the, the ones to get it the worst. So when the rest of the group sees those really bold members take flack, what happens? Well, they start to to disassociate from them. Oh, that's not really one of us. 
I mean, sure, yeah, we're both Christians, but I'm not that kind. Right? So the group itself can start to fracture. Because the one group that's being bold is, is, uh, is taking so much resistance that the rest of the group starts to say, well, then we're going to try to define ourselves differently so that we don't take the same flack as, as that laughing stock over there. I, I'd rather laugh with the culture than, than stand with them. And I want us to notice how these Christians reacted to that cultural pressure. It says that sometimes they were exposed to reproach and affliction, but also sometimes they partnered with those who were so treated. So they had the opposite reaction. When they saw the boldest members of their community taking fire, they stood with them. They backed them up. And sure, maybe they're weird, but if you're standing for something and you're a minority group, then you're going to have some weird bedfellows. You just sort of reconcile yourself to that reality, you know? Don't leave them. You stand with them, even if they're weird. Because our souls are on the line. So they faced a cultural pressure. And then the second thing that they faced was state pressure, state intervention. And specifically what I'm talking about is that the Christians lost their rights. Christians lost their rights. It specifically mentions them being imprisoned and then losing their property. So you understand that when somebody in the ancient world loses their property, I mean, we, we go to the office and we make money there and then we come home, right? Nobody went to the office in the ancient world. Your, your place of work was your household. You, you made money out of the same place that you made a family. So when you lose your property, you are losing everything. The state is intervening to take your livelihood, to, to make it so that you cannot trade anymore. So the Christians lose their property. One of, the, one of the things that we learn from history about what was really going on between the state and the church at this point is that the Christians would not acknowledge the state as the highest authority. Oftentimes in, in, in the Roman world, they, they would say that Caesar is Lord. They would refer to Caesar as Lord. And the Christians would say, well, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And in fact, the, the, the Christians had this inconvenient saying. They would say, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. And that would not have been a problem for Rome, except that they thought that God decides what Caesar is owed, and God decides what God is owed. Rome had a problem with that. They thought, all right, fine, like, render to God what you want, or whatever, but we decide what you owe him. We decide the limits of your faith. We decide the limits of your practice. And the Christians just said, no. The state does not decide the limits of the faith. We render to Caesar what God says we ought to in keeping with the authority that God has given him. So the question becomes, who is highest? Caesar or Christ? So I'm well over time. Otherwise, I'd want to unpack a little bit of where I'm seeing this take place in our culture, but I will just say this. Um... I don't know if we're heading into a big squeeze on small Orthodox Christians. I don't know. Um, you know, there's a thinker that I really appreciate who actually thinks that um, international markets are, are moving in a way that, that may disincentivize um, some of our, our corporations here to, to be more inclusive religiously. I think there's a, there's a lot of sense to, to that, and I think that there's a lot of possibility there. But I would not be a responsible pastor if I did not tell you that I smell some blood in the water. So I have to bring it up. Because God has entrusted you guys to the elders. So I have to say that I'm seeing things. I'm seeing things in the, the debates taking place right now in our Senate around religious liberty. And I could, if, if, if certain amendments aren't made to certain acts, I could see some pressure. And what I want us to respond with is not fearfulness, 
but watchfulness. Not fearfulness, but watchfulness. Be aware. And do not respond with, with, uh, with despair, but with joy. I'll end on this one point. What happened to these Christians that, that are being written to, written to here, they, they, they were faced with a choice between comfort or deprivation. Comfort or deprivation. So in order for them to enjoy all the benefits of Roman society, they, they were put in this position where they had to assent to Roman values. They had to say yes to Roman values to enjoy Roman society the way that they wanted to. Now, if they, if they didn't assent, they would get Christ, but they would lose everything else. If they agreed to what Rome was asking of them, they would get everything else and they would lose Christ. Because part of getting what Rome was offering was giving up the faith. And so they literally were faced with, with the parable of the treasure in the field. Jesus told a story about a man who goes to a field, he's walking in a field and discovers a treasure, and it's, a, it's of incredible value. But he has no money to buy that field. And so what he does is he realizes, okay, if I, if I keep what I have, I'll never get that treasure. If I throw everything I have, like if I sell everything I have, then I'll have enough money to buy the field and I'll get the treasure with it. And there, there was no question for him. Because he knew that the treasure in the field was of so much more value than whatever it was he was going to lose in order to get it. So he sold it all. The Christians in this letter were faced with the same dilemma. We keep everything and we lose the treasure or we stand on the faith and we watch the state take away everything that we call ours, but we get the treasure. They chose the treasure. It might not be the state that tempts you away, but you will be tempted away. And you must choose the treasure. You must choose Christ because it is so much more worth it than whatever it is you're keeping instead of him. Draw near, hold fast, stir up, meet together, keep the faith. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we are so grateful for the fact that our perseverance in the faith is actually not something that we accomplish on our own. We, we are so grateful for the fact that you, you really, Lord, are the one who keeps us. You said, Lord, that whoever the Father gives me will come to me, and I will lose none of them but raise it up at the last day. So keep us, Lord. I pray that we would um, respond to whatever culture, uh, cultural pressures we, we feel or, or potentially even state pressures that we feel. I pray that we'd respond not with despair but with joy. That we would remember uh, the disciples in Acts who were beaten and walked away rejoicing in the Lord that they had been counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. Give us militant joy, Lord. God, we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins which makes that available to us. Amen.